Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you all. This morning, we are starting off a new series, um, a series for October, since it is spooky season, that we are calling Texts of Terror, um, borrowing a phrase from a book by Phyllis Tribble by the same name. And Texts of Terror gets at this idea that there are difficult passages in the Bible, some problematic stories that can really perpetuate harm. Stories of things like genocide and destruction and plagues and the flooding of the whole earth. The Bible can really be a challenge, to put it lightly. So for the next few weeks, we are going to go through some themes and specific stories that present themselves as texts of terror. You can still submit your own suggestions. So even as you're listening today, if a certain story comes to mind, you can feel free to just put it in the chat and we'll look through those later. And the hope with this, we're working through these stories to say, yes, this is a struggle. You're not alone in thinking that the Bible can be really weird and really problematic when it's used in harmful ways. We also hope, though, to help redeem some of the story for you for offering some deeper context. Each week, we'll leave you with some different options for interpretation, not to say that this is the one right way to read the Bible or these are all the other wrong ways, but to say, here's a few different options for when you're searching for meaning as you read. So today, before we get into the specific themes and stories, I wanted to take the time to kind of set the tone for how we're thinking about scripture as a whole before we get into the specifics. Specifically today to talk about moving beyond inerrancy, which we'll come back to that word when we look at scripture as a source of meaning. And I recognize that I bring my own um, unique lens into this conversation. And I would love to hear um, for you in the chat, if you're on Discord, how you either grew up viewing the Bible or what the Bible is for you now, what your experience has been like that. I'd be interested in seeing those different responses. So for me, the Bible was a big part of my upbringing and formation. So this work really comes from a place of really deep appreciation and respect. I can remember in elementary school and the church children's choir singing about the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I can remember sitting in my childhood bedroom, highlighting line after line in the story, skipping over most of the Old Testament because that seemed really boring, focusing in a lot on Jesus. I can remember being at a Christian camp that I grew up at, listening to pastors speak and scribbling notes into the margins to try and capture everything that they were saying, not ever to distract from the word of God, but simply to help stay focused and faithful. I remember in high school youth group having a Bible challenge where we were told to bring our Bibles to school with us every day for a week to have it close by if we needed it. I'm not really sure what the goal here was, but the, the idea was that we would always have a Bible in our backpack. And now this would be so easy because you could just pull out your phone and have your little glow-in-the-dark Bible. But at this time, I had a giant study Bible that I lugged around with all my other textbooks just in case I needed to talk to somebody about Scripture. I'm grateful, though, that Scripture was really painted as a companion for me and a source of comfort in my upbringing. My own wrestling with scripture didn't actually come until college, and it mainly showed up because other people were telling me that things were problematic, which I find ironic now. Turns out those books that I had been really skipping over had some pretty horrific narratives in them. 
And the New Testament letters that I skimmed actually had some instructions that went against my whole plan of becoming a pastor as a woman. I'm really grateful that I had good friends and professors and mentors who helped me start this slow and steady work of wrestling through the difficulties in scripture. And it was really destabilizing and confusing. It felt like this text that had been a friend was suddenly betraying me. And I hadn't even done the work yet of realizing that for a white woman like me, there weren't even as many problems for other people in the text as I was encountering and realizing at the time. It took a lot of time and patience to come around to viewing the Bible as a source of hope again. So maybe you have a story similar to mine of wrestling through the Bible. Maybe you have some prior baggage that you bring when it comes to this conversation. Maybe you didn't have a religious upbringing, and the idea of even seeing the Bible, a book, as sacred seems kind of far off. If it's even remotely problematic, what's the point? Our goal here isn't necessarily to convince you to go and pick up a Bible if that doesn't feel like a natural thing to do. Even just saying that feels a little scandalous for my past evangelical self. If Sundays are the only time that you're hearing scripture read, you are doing just fine. We don't want to heap on any more religious guilt than is already present. Our goal also isn't to poke holes in the belief that the Bible is good. The fact that the Bible can be good makes it worth wrestling with. It makes it worth reconsidering and wondering about. It's a resilient enough text to withstand all of our questioning and doubts. So to shift gears here a little bit, this might get a little bit luxury, but I think it's really important because even if you see yourself as someone who's really removed from the Bible, you actually can't escape it. This is something that dominates culture. It shapes our politics. It shapes education. It shapes so much of the way of life. And so we get to be a part of shifting the narrative from some really problematic interpretations to really viewing and holding the goodness of the Bible again. So we're talking about this idea of moving beyond inerrancy when we think of scripture. This is my little luxury part. What is even inerrancy? Boiled down, it's the idea that the Bible is entirely accurate historically and scientifically. Inerrancy without error. If you're reading it correctly, there aren't any contradictions or inconsistencies, is what inerrancy says. There's a lot of mental gymnastics and suspension of doubt involved. The idea of strict inerrancy in the way that it's framed today is actually quite new compared to a really long-standing Jewish and Christian interpretations who um, arrive at different conclusions. As culture changes, the questions that we ask of the Bible and of religion also change. If you're interested in this, a significant document that this um, idea of inerrancy can be rooted in is called the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. This came out of a conference in 1978 of prominent evangelical scholars and systematic theologians. It's this long statement, but part of it says, Holy Scripture is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches, which means being holy and verbally God-given, scripture is without error or fault in all of its teachings. So basically anything scripture touches, matter, including matters of history and science, are factual and consistent. Now, I'm not convinced that binaries serve us well. So I don't think that the move here is to go from inerrancy to errancy. 
Binaries aren't helpful, especially when we're thinking creatively and critically. So the idea here to moving to errancy feels really unhelpful for me because the difficulties of scripture don't actually define all that it is. It's not the defining characteristic. You can acknowledge what is troubling without defining all of scripture as troubling. So if we're moving beyond inerrancy, if we're widening our perspective here, we get to have an inspired text. If the validity of the Bible isn't found in the idea that it's an accurate account of history, what does this mean for upholding the wisdom of scripture? I think its validity and sacred meaning comes from the idea that the Bible is a collection of experiences of God and of community. It is an attempt to define the undefinable, the relationship between the divine and humanity. And I believe that it enhances, not diminishes, the meaning of the text when we realize that writing in itself is a form of interpretation. As the writers, or after the writers, had an experience of God, they told the stories orally and then preserved them by writing them down, layer after layer of interpretation and translation, and different pieces of the story were preserved in different styles. P.N.'s host of the Bible for Normal People, which I found to be a really helpful podcast, sums this up in his book, The Bible Tells Me So, which I would recommend. He says, when we open the Bible and read it, we are eavesdropping on an ancient spiritual journey. That journey was recorded over a thousand year span of time by different writers with different personalities at different times under different circumstances and for different reasons. Different, 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 different. When we hold all of these differences, the different styles and authors and goals of the books of scripture, claiming absolute certainty about what the Bible is saying is a really difficult task. TL talked about earlier how we hold things, and I think that our grip can become so tight that things can shatter really easily. So when we grip certainty so tight, it can shatter really easily. At the same time, completely throwing away the text, especially if you've been really formed by it, can lead to a lot of cynicism and despair. Two things that I'm not convinced can bring about really any sense of hope. And I do believe that the trajectory of scripture is hopeful. It's about how we engage with that source of hope. So when we move beyond the argument of inerrancy, we're freed to hold the Bible as inspired. And this is an inspired text that has sustained many and can actively sustain us as well. So there are a few reminders that I wanna bring us to today to help set the table for the conversations that are coming on texts of terror. So the first is that creativity is a tool when reading the Bible, not a threat. Creativity is not a threat. We've talked about this before and have quoted Ted Lasso around this as well, but I think that the process of moving from judgment to curiosity is really powerful when we look at church tradition and scripture interpretation. Any academic work that I've done that's been truly rewarding has come from following the I wonders, all of the curiosity. I wonder what the background to the story was. I wonder what was going on in the communities that received these letters. I wonder why this story was passed down in this way. 
And following the I wonders doesn't mean that you have to go and get lost in research around the Bible, unless that's your jam and you really want to do that. But the I wonder can function on an individual level as well. It can be personal. I wonder what this story means for my community. I wonder what feels hopeful about this. I wonder if there's a different way that someone else has read this that will make this passage seem more like good news. I love the exercise of using holy imagination when reading stories about Jesus. This can be a really grounding practice, looking at the stories where Jesus was teaching his followers and wondering what things smelled like or what the weather was like that day. It may sound silly, but I think contemplating what the story felt like as it was unfolding can help us put our guard down when we're reading. We can move away from being on the defense about what something means or doesn't mean and move toward creatively embracing openness. And this openness allows you to embrace that there's more than one way to read a story, more than one way to write a story. Rachel Held Evans is someone I look to frequently as a model in creatively reimagining scripture. The way she engaged with both the Bible and the church feels really redemptive for me. Someone that was always looking to follow the loving thread of Jesus and wrestle through the questions with hope. If you are someone who wants to read more about seeing the Bible as inspired, I would highly recommend her book titled Inspired. And if you are someone who is wrestling with the idea of church, I would highly recommend her book Searching for Sunday. The second reminder is that the Bible is not an instruction manual. It's a wisdom book. Rather than seeing scripture as, I don't know if anyone's heard this before, but the basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E. We can look, instead of that, we can look to an inspired collection of stories that connects us with a particular tradition and a deeper sense of meaning. The Bible is unique. We have a set of authors inspired by their encounters of God who set out to preserve the divine narrative in their own voice with their own commentary. And I think it's powerful to be just one reader among many, many other readers or listeners across time. Even if you wouldn't consider yourself a reader or listener, you're still being formed by interpretations of the Bible. It's inescapable in our context. So are you being formed by really crappy interpretations or really beautiful ones becomes the question we can ask. Instead of some type of code of ethics, which I think a lot of religious settings present the Bible as, we have an inspired book of wisdom. The situations and circumstances throughout the Bible are nuanced, and our situations and circumstances are nuanced as well. There isn't some biblical formula that you can directly follow. And reducing the Bible to a rule book reduces God. Reducing the Bible to a rule book reduces God. The Bible is complex and speaks to the complexity of God. This book of wisdom can show us a great deal about ourselves. We look at communities searching for meaning, searching for understanding of what the divine is, and we can find comfort in knowing that the authors felt despair or righteous anger or grief. We are not alone in those feelings. We have models to see how they navigated that terrain. We say each week in our introduction that our guide here is Jesus, and the inspired gospel stories of the New Testament are a window into knowing that story, getting to know the one who guides us. 
Having a wisdom book of the Bible frees us to follow whatever response in the moment is most loving and knowing that that response is rooted in ancient tradition and in a wisdom text. So creativity is not a threat, it's a tool. The Bible is not an instruction manual, it's a book of wisdom. Our third reminder here is that the Bible is a word of God, not the only word of God. Nadia Boltz-Weber, who is a pastor and theologian, speaks from a Lutheran perspective, and she talks about how in her tradition, the word of God is first primarily Jesus. The word made flesh is what scripture says. Second, the word of God is the word proclaimed, the word sung, the word through preaching, encouragement, discussion among people. And then third, the word is the Bible. There are many words of God, some of them preserved in a book and some being actively sung and proclaimed in different ways. And claiming this doesn't cheapen the Bible in any way, but just puts it in good company. And it relieves the stress of thinking that all of our understanding of God has to come from this one really strange book. An inspired book, a sacred book, among many other sources of inspiration and sacred meaning. For some people, the process of deconstruction, which often centers dismantling teachings in the Bible, can be really painful because God gets all tangled up in scripture. So when you're questioning the words and maybe disenchanted by the Bible itself, suddenly your faith can't stand anymore. But when we recognize that Jesus and community and our lives are words of God, suddenly God is bigger than a text. There's more to rely on to bring you hope, even as you question and doubt. So there are three different ways that I want to leave us with, um, three practical methods of engaging with the Bible as an inspired and not an inerrant text. And hopefully these practical exercises will help you um, as we start a series that really is going to be centered on the Bible, centered on scripture. And I think that this can be helpful for all of us, even if you don't interact with scripture regularly, because again, all of us can help shift the narrative on how we treat the Bible. The first exercise or practice is seeing the Bible through a bullseye or dartboard way. So I first heard about this through an episode of the Bible for Normal People. Um, that was They were interviewing Nadia Boltzweber, who I just mentioned. And she, this is from David Lose's book, um, Making Sense of Scripture, which I haven't read, but Nadia recommended it, and I will follow anything she says mostly. <laughs> um, this idea here is that there are certain things in Scripture that have more weight than others, which if you're coming out of a highly religious setting, that might sound a little scandalous. And if you're not coming from a religious background, this might help instruct you with where to begin when looking at Scripture. She explains that the central point of gravity in the Bible is the gospel. Stories of Jesus would be at the center. And then the next ring moving out would be stories that echo the same messages of Jesus. So think of this as the same message just told at different times. And then you move out another ring, stories about the early church. You move out another ring, maybe some of the New Testament letters. And the very outside rings would be things like Levitical codes and laws that don't have the same direct tie to Jesus. Now, abandoning parts of scripture was deemed a heresy by the early church. 
But whether people actually say that they follow this bullseye approach or not, we all hold a different meaning versus based on different texts. We do this individually, individually and communally. We're already doing this. And the dartboard imagery just gives us permission to say this work can be really intentional and helpful and beautiful if you're centered on Jesus. It's not bad, it's actually really useful. The second exercise, an option that I'll leave you with. So we've got the bullseye approach, placing Jesus at the center as the point of gravity. And now the second exercise called finding your cover artists. So I got this from Rachel Held Evans' book, Inspired, that I mentioned. She writes that a piece of advice that was really meaningful for her on her own journey with scripture was to think about the Bible as a song that can be remixed and covered by different artists. Developing a list of trusted voices that you look to when you're following curiosity, following all of those I wonders and looking to learn more. So my encouragement would be here to find your cover artists. Maybe you've already done some of this work and you have some people that you go to, but these are people who make the words sing for you in a way that inspires or intrigues you or even challenges you. And I would say to find a diverse group of cover artists that have different sounds so that you're not just listening to the same song in some type of echo chamber. If you've been at Brownline for a bit, you've likely heard about some of my cover artists woven into the messages that we share. And even some of them have already come up today. My Google history has things like Nadia Boltzweber on forgiveness or Rachel Held Evans on the woman at the well. PNs in the Bible for normal people, they've been great um, resources for exposing me to a lot of different theologians and thinkers. Liberation theology has shaped me a lot, so I'll frequently go to people like James Cone and Dolores Williams. Certain professors and mentors in my life and friends that I know I can engage with conversations around this kind of stuff have also become some of my cover artists. So start to develop some of the voices that you enjoy listening to. Compile an actual list, it can be really helpful, so that when you have a question or a wondering, maybe something gets brought up in the next few weeks that you wanna learn more about, you have some concrete people that you can go to and say, I wonder what this person has written about, or I wonder what podcast they've been on that they've talked about this topic before. Whether you know these people personally or have only admired them from afar, they can help you to keep on that thread of curiosity, following the I wonders. Our last image and practice that we have is thinking of a tricycle when we're thinking about formation and reading the Bible. So this was our image for the week if you follow us on social media, a tricycle. And here, scripture is one of the wheels, but there are two other wheels, and those are tradition or community and experience. And this has come from Richard Rohr. Um, and he says that experience is actually the front wheel. We're not riding on some unicycle of the Bible alone. I think this is an encouragement to have a proportionately sized Bible, one that is balanced with other words of God. We do this in our relationships too. If we place all of our eggs in one basket, if we expect our partner or a best friend or a spouse or whatever it may be, to be absolutely everything in our life, it's disproportionate. We don't get the same amount of support or meaning or understanding because it's too much pressure on one relationship. And we can do this with the Bible. 
So when you value experience alongside of the Bible, when you value tradition, how people throughout generations have come to the Word of God, have come to the church, things like that, you get to have more and more to root yourself in, to ground yourself in. The Bible can be a source of wisdom and help. We can affirm its meaning as an inspired book, but we can relieve the pressure of making the Bible the be-all, end-all. And if you're new to all of this too, it makes it so much easier that you don't have to sign on to embracing the entirety of the Bible all at once and making that something central in your life. You don't have to carry around a study Bible in your backpack for a week, just in case your friends ask something about scripture. You can look to your own experiences and say, God is within that. You can look at tradition. You can look at your own community and say, God is within that. You have a balanced tricycle to be riding on. All of this work matters so much to me because the most dangerous theologies that have and continue to harm people claim to be rooted in scripture. This book of wisdom and experiences of God, not of formulaic certainty or scientific facts, has the power to bring about a great deal of healing and liberation. And it has the power to perpetuate hate when it becomes a weapon. The Bible is everywhere whether we're conscious of it or not, we can help to shift the narrative of the Bible as a source of help itself, rather than a source of harm or control. And I'm excited to continue doing this work when we look at particular themes and stories in the next few weeks. I know that this can become a really heady conversation, but it has such embodied implications. Control and power play out in really really evident ways, often in religious settings. And beauty and healing and liberation can play out as well, rooted in this same text. So to help kind of ground us back in our bodies, I'm going to pray for us now. And I'd like to lead us in a body scan prayer. So if you want to get into a comfortable position in your seat, maybe shift so that you can ground your feet on the floor and We're going to just spend a little bit of time paying attention to our bodies. So I invite you to either close your eyes if that's more comfortable or find a spot that you can focus on if you don't want to close your eyes. And would you join me in just scanning through your body now? Starting with the top of your head, moving all the way down to your feet that are planted on the floor. Take a moment just to notice your breathing. Notice where there may be pain. Notice where you are carrying stress or any tension. Maybe you've even felt disconnected from your body. Let this be a practice that invites you to collect yourself and come back to yourself. Notice if things are feeling good, if you're feeling healthy and well.
God, we thank you that you are a guide in all of this work, that we are embodied human beings navigating a web of theology and interpretation of culture, of different voices saying different things and using the same text to support it all. It can be really tricky work. God, as we unravel some of what has been painful or harmful, may you be present in the re-raveling, the weaving of a beautiful tapestry. God, as we navigate conversations, difficult ones, stressful ones, anything that is coming in our week, would we have this practice of being called back to ourselves? of noticing the places of tension and stress, pain, ease, joy. Would you help ground us in our breathing? If there are things about this that feel difficult to hear, God, would we continue to follow the I wonders as grounded people, as a collective, that we do this in community and not on our own is a beautiful gift. So would you pray these words over yourself now? May I pay attention to my body. May I pay attention to my anxieties. May I pay attention to where hope is leading me. May I feel at peace. And may I know a loving God, a God who holds me and cares for me, a God who is evident in words on a page, in words being spoken, in words that are sung, and in lived out lives. Amen.